You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast celebrating the work of Stephen King with an occasional focus on his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes and review the books and comic series in Kef episodes. We also discuss non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about all things that serve the King. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Hurt, and with me today, as usual, is is tiny hello hi tiny how's it going it's going good man going good good um i'm really excited to talk this is so dumb i'm really excited to talk to you today on the podcast because i feel like when we podcast together we really mesh well Uh, (laughs) uh, that is a callback to something that is not going to be recorded (laughs) because i don't think i'm going to put that on the patreon thing but hey if you want to support us on patreon you can do that at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer where you get access to an exclusive RSS feed with content recorded specifically for Patreon supporters at the minimum rate of $1 per month. And by the time you're listening to this, we should probably also have a revamped uh, reward tier thing there. So check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Yes. So today on the podcast, Tiny, this is a very exciting episode because we are finally, at long last, finishing our review of the mammoth tome that is the stand complete and uncut edition. That we are. That by we Stephen are. Stephen King. Yep. Um, so tiny. Yeah. Uh, like this, this is really exciting and everything. We're going to, uh, <laughs> share our thoughts on part three. But before we do that, I can't remember if I mentioned this last time on the podcast, but, um, as of right now, I think I did mention this. There's a new edition of the stand that's coming out. Did I talk to you about this tiny? No. Okay. So barnesandnoble.com has it available for pre-order right now. As of this recording, we're recording this in July. Who knows when it's going to air? <clears throat> so uh, it's a pretty cool cover. It's um, kind of in the same vein as some of King's more recent like paperback editions. Um, it's got like kind of a, an orange and yellow kind of sunset uh, illustration with just a lone person standing on what looks like an island. Um, yeah. And then it says Stephen King, the stand, um, it's available in hardcover at bn.com, barnesandnoble.com. Um, and apparently it's going to be released on September 8th, 2020. Uh, the hardcover is 25 bucks, hmm. um, which is a little steep, but you yeah. know, yeah. Is there anything special about it other than, it's just, it's just, is it like supposed to be a companion for the miniseries? Or? No, it doesn't look like a, like a tie-in edition or anything. Um, it hmm. just looks like just a new... A new, uh, new edition of okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty cool. That's nice. Yeah. Um, do you have any Stephen King check-ins? Um, it's kind of nebulous since we're recording this in the past. Yeah. I don't think I do. Okay. I'm not reading anything right now either. Yeah. I was going to ask you, did you want to read Misery? I do have that in my library. 
Okay. My audiobook library, so I would be down to read that. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. And then, so by the time you're listening to this, we will have already reviewed Misery and the movie. <laughs> um, yeah, but we also need to do The Outsider and Revive. We have so much stuff, Tiny. We do. Like, it's getting to the point where I'm starting to get, like, a little anxious about it. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah. We do it all for you guys. Our it's lives all for, for you. you. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which brings us to our episode. So, Tiny, yeah. book three of The Stand. Mm-hmm. It's uh, book three, The Stand, September 7th to January 10th. Um, Tiny, this section of the book comprises of, I mean, about five hours worth of audiobook. Yeah. Um, it's a very short section, but it is something that I... And I think I mentioned this on our last episode that I was curious how it was going to read to me this time around because I always get the impression or my memory of the stand is that the, the good stuff is in the second section. Yes. Um, which is also kind of the more dry stuff and toiling Mm -hmm. stuff, but that's where the character development really like pumps into gear and everything. And I think I mentioned last time, um, on, on the podcast when we reviewed book two that, I was just curious how it was going to how it was going to end up um in terms of how I felt about it. Yeah. Um going into book 3, by the way, we're going to be spoiling the entire novel of the stand, so fair warning. So tiny going into book 3, what were your expectations and how did you feel going into it? I kind of had big expectations because this will be my f- I think this is going to be my f- this is my fourth read through of the stand. Um and First time with audiobook, mm-hmm. but um, I feel like like kind of what what you were just saying. Like I feel like book three is sort of, I it's it's a little elusive for me. Like honestly, I had trouble remembering like the actual climax of the conflict and stuff oh, like yeah. that because it's and it's not that it's even uneventful. Like it's mm. it's the opposite, right? It just feels like all of the stuff that there is to love about this story comes well before it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you, like you were just saying, like I, I book two, I feel like that's where all the, the joy of the book is. And that's where, you know, I don't know. That just, that just seems to be the part that I always latched onto the most. And I really wanted to change that with this read through because mm-hmm. I feel like I've never given the ending a fair shake or it's, it's, it's never stuck with me before. Um, yeah, me and too. I, mean, I had trouble remembering it. Like, oh, what happens here? What happens to this character? Oh, yeah. What does he do? What's that? You know? And, and uh, that's kind of how I was going through this. And I am happy to report that this is my favorite read through of book three. Cause I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I had in the past. Yeah, same here. Honestly, maybe it's cause we're older now. The last time I read mm. this, I was like, it was probably 10 years ago. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, probably ten ten years ago. So, yeah, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't I, know. If we're we're more wise now. Maybe <laughs> I I read it kind of in the background, like listening to the audiobook. I think last year or the year before. Okay. Um. So it was kind of fresh in my mind, but it was it was a more passive listening experience than like I wasn't like listening to it and taking notes like I did this time around. Mm-hmm. But, um. I do think, and we'll, we'll maybe set aside, or maybe we can dive into it now, but I kind of wonder how much of that is due to the current world we're in right now. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, that's true. So we're recording this July 21st, and 
COVID-19 is still raging throughout the country, not the world mm-hmm. <laughs> necessarily, the country, um, because people don't want to wear masks and they're fucking idiots. But anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just anyway. So, uh, we have had several spikes in cases and everything. And it's just like, it, like for me, not to get into a COVID-19 thing, but like for me right now, July 21st, I feel like it's this, it's this despair that I feel that I feel like this, all of this stuff is going on. And I feel like there is just a complete lack of leadership. Yes. Um, and like today, Trump started the COVID-19 press briefings again, um, where he, like, it's, uh, it, people are celebrating it as more somber and everything and more, I don't know. I don't buy it. But anyway, that's in the past, you know, the world has changed by the time you listen to this, I'm sure. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, I have this feeling of despair about the world we're in and like, it's not so much like a, like a, I'm trapped at home kind of thing. Cause like things have opened up and, and we can do like, I don't really do anything anyway, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like there's a little bit more wiggle room in terms of what we can do as long as we're, you know, careful and everything. But it's just feels like there's a lack of leadership and everything. So reading the stand now in the era of COVID-19 is really unique. And this book, this section of the book really resonated or or really uh, hit a couple of notes in my soul <laughs> as it related to my um uh despair or my my uh anxiety over the current pandemic. So mm. we'll talk in more detail as we go on, but yeah, I I thought this was a really unique um reading experience given the time that we're living right now. For sure. Yeah. So this section of the book doesn't have a lot to it necessarily right. compared to the other two. So it opens up with us finally getting into Randall Flagg's camp and his whole side of this this battle between good and evil. How do you feel about that perspective change and did you think do you think that Stephen King like paid that off well? Yeah, I think one of the best things about it is I think it did pay off and one of the reasons why is the fact that most of the characters, including like Lloyd Henry, who's supposed to be like the right hand man, mm-hmm. um, they're very, very human people. And, and like, yeah. there's not, what I mean by that is they're not like evil. You know what I'm saying? They're, right. It's, it's this whole battle, if you will, and this conflict has been poised as a good versus evil. And it, it is mm-hmm. for, for sure. But it's, it's kind of one of those, things like it's it's like you have to put everything in perspective right and yeah it's it's sort of like when you look at world war ii like a lot of those german soldiers were just just soldiers just fighting in a war they didn't you know there was no a lot of them weren't even necessarily part of the nazi party they just they were just following orders dutiful soldiers right yeah um they didn't care about jewish people or Hitler's final solution. They didn't even know about it. They didn't Mm -hmm. care about it. You know, they were just trying to fight for their country. Right. And that's a hard perspective to come to knowing what we know now. Yeah. And I'm not trying to compare Lloyd Henry to Nazis. Right. Sort of 
a lot of people say you should never compare anything to the Nazis because right. it, it just gets lost and mm-hmm. it's like it's it's too evil to yeah. comprehend. But unless um, you're comparing the government mandating that we wear masks to Nazism, well, duh. <sighs> yeah, just not my America. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, if like uh, anyway. But anyways, it's that's one of the best things about it is so many of the characters from uh, the the. Bad zone? Does it's not, it's never called anything, is it? From Vegas? Uh, no, just Vegas. Because the free zone is the the good side, right? Um, uh, they're just people, and and they they don't necessarily have an agenda. Uh, they're you know it's sort of, I think for them it's it's posed as more of an us versus them as opposed to a mm-hmm. good versus evil type thing, um, which is much more relatable and human. Yeah. Um, whereas you know Randall Flag is this subhuman or just this like uh, truly a force of evil the devil whatever you Mm -hmm. want to call him he's just evil incarnate um and 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 the people that follow him are such a a pretty significant contrast yeah uh, of that and i think that's the best thing about book three is it really brings that to the forefront um Mm -hmm. and it i mean there's some of it in, in the other books too, like the the whole crucifixion thing, yeah. Um, I think that sets the stage for all of that. Um, but it's it's really it's really made whole in the third book. I agree, and I will say that I feel like the crucifixion stuff in book two feels like it is setting the stage for the stand, which is this ultimate battle of good versus evil and everything and it sets it up as granted yeah the crucifixion stuff does i think it i think in book two it comes from a perspective of the people that are doing it are like not really on board with it per se Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it kind of gets the um i don't know i I think going into the thing that struck me about book three was the way that like you said a lot of the characters that are on the evil side of that are on flag side aren't like pure evil characters. They're not like vessels for Randall Flagg's evil to, to infiltrate and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I'm jumping ahead a little bit in my notes, but we'll, we'll, we'll be as, we'll be as thorough as we can. Um, one of the things that struck me this time around is how it is so evident that the flag side, that the Vegas side, the quote unquote evil side of this good versus evil battle is born from fear. It's more fear based, even yeah. at the Randall flag level. That's true. Um, because our first, one of our only scenes in the book where we are, uh, front, where we're in, uh, Randall flag's perspective and we're seeing his inner, th- inner monologue and stuff is when he is kind of going away on his own and he's trying to figure out like what's going on and he's trying to like figure out like who the spy is or who the third spy is and he's doubting himself and like why he doesn't have the power that he used to have and everything Mm -hmm. and i thought that that was so telling and i think that that brings on one hand it brings the entire novel that all three parts home into just one really fine package of a story about what happens. Like it's not so much a a story of good versus evil. It's good being born out of a, uh, a pull to fight evil, which is born out of fear. Like there are characters, like you said, that are on the Vegas side or on flag side that they are wavering in their, in their commitment to it. So Mm -hmm. 
there's Whitney who at the end like is like uh he is in the crowd and he's he's yelling at yelling at flag and yelling to appeal to everyone uh to you know come to the light and like see see like what they're doing is wrong or whatever and then another character that i kind of had notes on was dorgan i think yeah <laughs> uh the cop who will talk more because we'll probably I, I think i'll want to go beat for beat for each of the characters but dorgan is an interesting character because he is someone who clearly is not a terrible person. He's not an evil person. He's an understanding person, but he also understands that he had a choice <laughs> and he chose the wrong side. And we'll talk about that when we get, when we talk more about Glenn, um, or I guess Stu, I think, I don't know. We'll talk more as we go on, but yeah, I just think that that's a really interesting way to kind of reveal the, the, uh, the evil within the, within the, uh, add complexity to the, to the quote unquote evil side of the good versus evil thing. So, yeah. So anyway, I just really like the complexity of the evil side and, and it's not, it's not the black and white, uh, good versus evil story that we were led to believe it would be. It's more complex than that. I really, I really dug it for that. Yeah. I mean, especially with Lloyd by the end, he's mm -hmm. like a bumbling mess. Yeah. And I think that's truly indicative because especially in book, I think it's book one, he's like horrific. The, yeah. the stuff that he participates in with Poke mm -hmm. um, is is pretty horrific and awful yeah. and just plain uh, evil, really. But I think he was just kind of along for the ride. And, you know, I don't think you can really excuse it, but it's still, it's like he was so horrible in book one. And then by the time, by the end of the book, you're, you're empathizing with him. Yeah. And it's, it's, and yeah, his complicit, complicence uh complicitness complicity complicity his felicity um <laughs> his uh, uh his complicity in the acts of evil that he finds himself in um is more just like he's a follower he's someone who is just kind of following the lead like poke uh yeah. was a murdering sociopath and he's just following the lead and then um i don't know the rat was trying to eat the cellmate or the guy in the next cell so he thought maybe he would do it so he was following the lead mm -hmm. um but no, on a more uh realistic one is that flag gave him the key so he's following flag um one of the things and i tweeted this because i was so excited when we got to this part um glenn bateman like we i promise we will circle back and go kind of chronologically but glenn bateman talking to him in that calm way mm -hmm. is just like the best it's the best iteration of like the good coming up against the evil. Yeah. Um, in this book. And I just, I love it for that. And I love Glenn Bateman so much. Me too. Um, but let's go back and let's talk about the, let's talk about the spies. Mm -hmm. So the, the book, book three opens up with judge Ferris being eventually murdered yeah. <laughs> by flag flags, men. And it's brutal. <clears throat> it's it is brutal. Um, and I kind of love it for that. Yeah. Um, it just, it establishes the stakes and it, it introduces us to Flag's camp pretty well. And, uh, yeah, it also, it just shows just how overpowered Flag is. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the interesting things. Cause like he's, he's, you know, tra like he's 
in a crow's brain and he's watching judge Ferris in the motel room and everything. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just showing him that he can be anywhere. He can see anything and his power is vast and everything. And it's like, it's, <laughs> and the last we've heard from the Boulder free zone is they just sent four dudes walking, uh, <laughs> from Colorado to Vegas. Yeah. Barefoot. Um, like on foot and everything. And it's just like this, it's such a, it's such a, such an uneven kind of thing. Um, and I, I just love that. And then immediately after that, we get, we get caught up with Dana Jurgens, who's the other spy who she's sleeping with, with Lloyd. And there we get Lloyd's descriptions of flags, like powers and evil. Mm -hmm. Like he talks about how flag just murdered some dude. Um, and it's just, it's so, it's just so just gruesome and everything. So how did yeah. you feel about Dana Jurgens? And we'll talk about her death in a bit, but her and Judge Ferris as an introduction to book three and how it relates to the evil side of the book. Yeah, it was definitely a good place to start. Um, one, one sort of theme that I think is prevalent, especially with the judge is that, um, like, like you said a minute ago, most of the followers of flag are there out of fear. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the way things f start to fall apart for the followers of Randall Flagg exemplifies the idea that, that that love is a much better motivator than fear. Yeah. Because things just start to go to shit. Because like, th th those guys who are all watching the watching out for Judge Ferris are really just, just going through the motions. And they're not yeah. into it at all. I don't think they really wanted to kill the guy. I I don't know. I think I think it was just. I I, I think it's it sort of started to show that, mm -hmm. um, that theme or that that started to play out. Um, and of course culminates in the in the the final conflict. But um, but yeah. One one other thing that I loved about um, Judge Ferris is um. His that final scene where he gets killed is uh, Stephen King is very good not just in this book but in others about writing about and describing guns <laughs> yeah. and and gun gunplay fighting um, gunfights he's just really great uh, mm -hmm. at it. There's a, a scene if you will in I think it's Drawing of the Three mm -hmm. where there's a shootout at like a mob bar. Yeah. And there's some guy using like a fully automatic, like a machine gun or something, mm. like an M60 or something like that. Um, and it made me think of that. Uh, and then this comes to mind where the two guys sh get into a bit of a shootout with Judge Ferris. Um, and then just the general, the general writing about Roland's, uh, guns in, in, in the, throughout the Dark Tower, throughout the yeah. whole series. Um, just the descriptors of them. And, and one thing I like that he does is most writers and stuff kind of use guns as a tool. They're not really mm. just, they're not very descriptive devices. They're just there and they're used to kill people. The, the, the drama is in the, what the gun uh, and, and what happens as a result of using the gun, not using the gun itself. Whereas mm -hmm. Stephen King makes, talking about the gun roaring and how like he, he loved to talk about 45s and mm -hmm. 45s are like, like miniature cannons and the recoil and like how like half of the judge's head disappears. And yes. it's, it's all just so graphic. And I think it's important as a proponent of firearms to demonstrate and 
talk about how powerful and destructive they are because, you know, in Hollywood, they're just, they're fun and they're cool and all yeah. that. And, you know, you see, see movies like John Wick and you're like, oh, that's badass. And like, yeah, it is. But it's like, don't forget that they're just, you know, people sort of tend to forget that guns are so destructive, really. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, we talk about it all the time, but I don't know. That's just something that I've always appreciated about his writing mm-hmm. is, is how they're, how descriptive he is with, with gunfire, frankly. <laughs> In other know. words, that was a gun nut thing of a gun nut <laughs> tangent for me to go off on, I guess. But yeah. I feel like my heart was in the right place. Oh, totally. I was just going to say, in <laughs> in other words, uh, if people don't kill people, guns kill people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, but yeah, I agree. That scene with Judge Ferris, his, his death is just so just, it's a spurt of violence that is so. Kind of rewarding uh, in a weird yeah. way. I mean, you're sad to see him die, and it sets the stage for you know the final few chapters of the book mm-hmm. in a really like intense way. But I mean, coming off of the second, like the middle portion of the entire book being kind of dry and and building toward like an explosion and everything, right into this just action like kill. Uh, right. The character is really just it keeps that momentum in a in a really satisfying way. Yeah. Um and with Dana, I really just like how good of a spy she is. Me too. Like she's so good she's literally sleeping with the right hand guy. Yeah. You know, she basically got climbed as high as she could. I yeah. Mean, and unfortunately things go south for her. It's, totally. It's sad, but I think at the same time she's like okay with it. Yeah. Because she's pretty badass. Totally. Like it's uh the her confrontation with Flag is one of my favorite parts of the entire novel, and that's mostly because this is really the one of the first, if not the absolute first, time that our side, the good side, is like directly talking to Randall Flag. Like it is, like it is the first time that this character is being shown to us in all of his persuasive and evil glory (laughs) from the perspective of the Boulder free zone. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's really, it's a really satisfying interaction between them because Dana just keeps her wits about her. She is like, she's like, he, she notices that he's trying to glamor her and everything and trying to brainwash her or, or whatever. But she's like, keeps her faculties about her and the way that she goes out, like she kills herself is after attempting to kill him is just so like so badass like mm, yes. like you said it's such a badass like spy way to go out yeah um i i really loved it um right yeah and both of those characters Ferris and Dana again to kind of go back to the theme of they were motivated by love and friendship and stuff like mm. that and to the point where they're willing to sacrifice their lives whereas yeah. Really, the only character on Randall Flagg's side that's willing to do that is uh, Trash Can Man. Yeah, uh, and he you know kind of kind of flips the script in the end. But... That really blew up in his face <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, Boy, is there yeah. nuclear material on his face? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I agree, and that's where I think that's where a lot of Stephen King's influence, like the influence from. Uh, Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings comes into play in this story. Like you can really see like the fellowship of the ring and like the fellowship (laughs) aspect of Lord of the Rings 
at play in in the dynamics that he sets up with with these characters, and we'll talk more about that with the pilgrimage that mm. uh, the four men go on. But yeah, um, yeah, I just I I love it. I I think it's such it's such an interesting meld of something that is very much a I don't want to say expected, but it's like it's kind of like 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 we said, a spy kind of thing, the spy way to go out of Dana uh, confronting the the boogeyman of the book. Right. Um, but it is so just unique to Stephen King in such a such a unique way, um, and I just I love it. Yep. Um, so then after that we get Harold. Yeah. And I love the way that. We're just brought into like it's like oh Harold's laying in laying in a ditch he's dying, um, <laughs> yeah. It's like we have to play catch up or Stephen King plays catch up with us, right? Um, yeah. And so, how did you feel about Harold's whole demise? Um, uh, you know, again in the end, I think I feel like so many of these characters that who have done horrible things, we 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 empathize with them, and they're mm-hmm. and they're at the very end. Um, and 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 Harold falls into that category that. That's just such an awful way to go out, you know. You're literally abandoned yeah. at the bottom of a of a ravine with a broken leg. That's mm-hmm. just not. That's torturous. Um, yeah. But he had it coming, you know. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying he didn't have it coming, but that's. And and I think just his path is just so tragic. He's mm-hmm. he's he's a weirdo goofball. Um, and he. You know, I think I mentioned it in one of the previous episodes we recorded that. Mm-hmm you sort of empathize with Harold early on because I feel like all of us, when we were in our teens had that girl we were infatuated with. Right. As, as a former teenage boy, (laughs) we all had that crush or we had crushes or, or whatever infatuations with different girls. And, Mm. and, you know, he had this situation present itself where he and that girl were the only two people left in his town. And he sees it as this amazing thing. And then it gets ripped away from him you know, I, I, it's not excusable what, what he did and how he reacted to that being ripped away from him. But it's, again, you sort of empathize with his feelings. You know, he had no right to kill anyone and do what he did. <laughs> but it's like you can understand how that event tormented him to the point where he got to where he got. You can see the path, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. You know, and it's it's really interesting. Um I've I've thought about like your read of Harold and I I think it's really interesting because I I don't necessarily empathize with him that much. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah, and and I get like that approach or I get that analysis like I I agree that that it's an interesting way like I mean he's infatuated with this girl, he's the last person on earth with this girl mm-hmm. and it's uh taken away and everything, but I think from the outset with Harold I was just so turned off by his possessive nature and the way right. like his ownership of like his his the presumption that he staked his claim on this woman um and everything it's just like this entitlement that I think is one of the one of the more fascinating kind of character arcs especially considering like now with the rise of the internet and incels <laughs> incels and yeah. everything like it's like it is that it's the prototype of that and everything definitely and i think it's i i don't know i just don't have a lot of sympathy for harold <laughs> however i will say that when we're with him in the ravine when he's dying or he's like it's game over for him and everything i did sympathize with him f- 
but not but more from a more from a like confused kid perspective like yeah. he i don't know like he was arrogant he was a dick he was murderous like he was evil yeah. to an extent but like he always said that he did it of his own free will mm-hmm. and i can't remember exactly what he wrote and everything but i just i i feel like he stood by that for the most part and i think that that's an a telling read of the character that he says like, Oh, I did this of my own free will. This is, this was my, like I made a mistake and everything and all that, but he didn't really do it of his own free will. Like uh, maybe he did, but it was more that influence from the dark side. Yeah. That kind of, it wasn't a controlling effect, but like he, he made the choice to do that, but it's still like his prized possession is his mind that he thinks is thinks is better than everyone else's when it's really like, right. no, he was just a pawn in this evil person's evil things, big plan. Right. Um, and he can't reconcile that. So I don't know. I just, I, I think it's a really fascinating character, um, that I don't really empathize with that much. That's fine. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's true. I don't disagree mm-hmm. with any of that. Yeah. I guess that's just how I felt. Yeah. To so. each their own. Ignore that box I brought in here and dropped in the corner, by the way. Oh, okay, cool. I, I was wondering about the ticking and everything. <laughs> um, so, uh, there's a walkie-talkie connected to it. I'll make sure to mute it so that we... Yeah, because we're recording right say, now. So. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you say something, it'll just fall on deaf ears. <laughs> um, still love that so much. Yeah. Um, so, so Harold ends up killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then Nadine. Let's talk about Nadine. We'll, yes. we'll jump around a little bit. Nadine meets Flag and goes to Flag. And again, like this section of the book, I got so much more out of it this time than I think I ever have in any of my reads of the book. Okay. Um, because her meeting with Flag, and maybe it's, and I don't want to dive into this whole thing because it's not what the show's about really, but I kind of feel like I just connected with this section of the book more because of the way that the evil side, the the bad side of the book, the evildoers and everything are painted as character. Like this entire section of the book is less about the big confrontation between good and evil. And it's more about how the evil side is unraveling. And it's like a wizard of Oz effect where we're seeing the man behind the curtain because everything is falling apart because you're not sustaining he's not sustaining the side through just fear and everything like people are slowly waking up to it or they're aware of it but they're just kind of following orders to use your like nazi metaphor yeah but it's just it's really interesting the points where we see it unravel like with when nadine meets with flag and like he rapes her and everything and like the description is just that's really horrific it's it's that's the exact word i was gonna use it's it's horrific it's and it's just, it's, talk about a character that doesn't really deserve empathy, but I do empathize with is Nadine in yeah. that she's been waiting her whole life for this moment and everything. And it's just like, she immediately like realizes like, this is not what she signed up for. This is, this is something else entirely. And the way King writes that scene is just heartbreaking and horrifying. And it paints what little we have of Nadine after that in such a catatonic and just dazed light that just brings a, an, an entirely new level of 
remorse for the character and empathy and just pain. Um, and then, and then she, she dies off, off page. <laughs> like, right. It's just kind of a throwaway line. And I think that that shows the flag didn't give a shit. <laughs> like, right. It's just, it's, it's just so, so amazing. Yeah. I, uh, I, I had sort of forgotten about her. I couldn't really remember what happened to her. Um, Me and I think, it's, I think it's because her, uh, literally her final scene is very, um, underplayed. Like, like like you said, but um, but yeah, talk about tragic. You know, I feel like she was so so like trapped in her situation. I feel like mm-hmm. she was kind of being she was being shunned away in the free zone. Um, yeah. it it was it was of her own doing. I think she had kind of, you know, she she had kind of towed the line and tiptoed over the you know good side versus bad side. Yeah for a while to kind of see how things played out. And she's a bit of an Aaron Burr, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I think uh, the the fact that she had a path or she had a way to redemption and it kind of, it just ended up not working out for her. And she felt like the only way she could go was towards flag. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really sad. And it, just the fact that she just had such a horrible last mm-hmm. few days. And I mean, Harold treated her like crap too. Yeah. He treated her like shit and didn't, didn't treat her right. And I mean, he, she had to like her little scooter broke down like pretty mm-hmm. far away from Vegas. And she had to like stumble into Vegas and yeah. she just had this terrible journey and then she gets raped and then she's <laughs> a shell of a person and yeah. basically just kills herself, yep. jumps off the side of a building and, uh, I was going to say she didn't when when she was kind of toying with whether to be good or bad or whatever and bolder she wasn't willing to wait for it wait for it <laughs> no not so much Aaron Burr. but anyway um yeah. but yeah like I I agree yeah it's just it's heartbreaking it's it's horrifying and everything in that kind of if I remember correctly because it's been a while since we covered book two but if I remember correctly the kind of the point that brought her the thing that pushed her over into the dark side of everything was flag telling her that they know about like ever, like they're on to her and everything. And that's why they needed to go right and accelerate their plans and everything. So it's one of those things that like, if like, I don't know it, she could have, she could have made the right choice, but she didn't. And yeah, she just had a very horrible end and it's just, it's really horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And so, before the meeting, before they, before she meets him, we get one of our only scenes. Like it's the one of the first and only times that we get Flag's complete point of view. Like it's when yeah. he's alone. He's like we talked about it before, but it's really fascinating because it's him filled with doubt, and that's one of the things that I found really fascinating about this, about this section of the book. Again, to kind of call back to that Wizard of Oz um, comparison. The entire man behind the curtain effect where you can't sustain this evil based on fear. It's just really interesting because like I kind of equated it to the world we're in now. Like people are afraid of coronavirus and they're afraid of the limitations that, you know, the government's imposing and everything. And that fear causes people to do irrational, stupid things like not wear a mask or take something like take, not really see things that clearly they're looking for, um, 
like they're looking for excuses or scapegoats or they're looking for like insufficient data to back up their biases. Like I, it's just, it's, it's surreal. And like reading this book now, while people are talking about how, Oh, if you wear a mask, you're limiting your oxygen consumption and you're like, it's, it's more harmful to wear a mask than not, which is like patently bullshit, complete, like in inaccurate and everything. And then mm-hmm. like, People like, as of this recording, uh, they announced that when they have the Indy 500 here in Speedway, um, they're going to have 25% capacity and masks are going to be required. And like, I've talked about this on other podcasts and everything, but like, one of the simple joys I have in my life is when I see those news articles on Facebook, I'll go to the comments and find like the idiots that are trying to spread like misinformation or just having completely terrible takes on it and block them from, from (laughs) Facebook. Um, just a little, I don't know, a little nice thing that I get to do is like, like they're silenced. I never have to see them again. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, like I saw people saying like, so if it's 25% capacity, why do we need masks and everything? It's like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, well, if it's only a minor infection, why do you need antibiotics? Or right. why if you have a, a lock on your door, why do you need an alarm? Why mm-hmm. just, oh my God. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what was I saying? <laughs> uh, but anyway, so fear, like evil based in fear doesn't work in, in the book. And that I related to that. Uh, so yeah, I just love that kind of that dichotomy of, or that, that dynamic of fear running the evil side and just faltering completely yeah. because it's not sustainable. Right. Uh, so yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, did you have anything on that? Um, no, I think I said my piece on that actually. Okay, cool. So, yeah. Let's get away from the demon rape again. Yeah. Uh, sad to say, uh, not the last time we'll be covering that on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, so then we get Tom Cullen. He, my God, like his arc throughout this entire book is just incredible. Mm-hmm. But here, one of our first scenes with him is he is making his return journey to Boulder. Um, and there's something that he says or that he thinks in his, in his mind that I think is a perfect summation of kind of the, the dynamic of good versus evil as depicted in this book. So Tom Cullen, as he's, as he's traveling, uh, I, I think it might be when he's still in Vegas. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's thinking about the differences between boulder and vegas and he says that there's love in boulder but no love in vegas because there's so much fear in vegas that everyone is too busy being scared to love Mm. and i just love how succinct that is and it's such a complex analysis that's through the prism of the mind of a mentally challenged character right and it's just it's incredible that that like i love that king selected that character to give us that summation of the differences between the two factions in this book, because he's like, he, it's just, he cuts to the simplistic, the simplest way to communicate a complex, uh, idea. And I, I love it for that. Yeah. It's, it's so simple that even Tom Cullen can pick it out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But it's also, it's one of the most important and, dynamic parts of of the human condition if you will but it's Mm -hmm. it's boiled down so succinctly like you said that is really 
kind of beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, you know, maybe some people would be critical for him having a, a mentally handicapped character. Um, and you know, the, the word retard and retarded is thrown mm-hmm. around quite a bit. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily used in a derogatory way. Like it's, that's not a term we use anymore. Right. But at the time, you know, people would say, oh, that he's, he's mentally retarded. They would say yeah. that even though now that's not politically correct. Right. Um, so I think maybe people might read this book and, and see this character and some of the language used and would say that it's, uh, it's unsensitive or it's, you know, whatever. They'd criticize it for that. But I, I can see past that, I guess, and, and yeah. put it into the, proper context and and again what like you were saying what Stephen King achieves with the character is pretty monumental and, mm-hmm. and his arc throughout the book is just really incredible I yeah I, I take no issue with any of it um, and I I love I love where he goes after this too like oh, his me whole too. when he runs into Stu and everything yes. I just yeah oh yeah <laughs> not to jump ahead Right, right. Um, But before we get to that, let's talk about Trash Can Man. Yeah. Um, He has this growing psychosis through this book that is really great. I don't remember necessarily the exact context, but I think it's when he's kind of off on his little... When he's finding the the Mm -hmm. A-bomb. He's having these visions of all the tormentors from his childhood... And Tiny, I don't think you've read this short story or seen the movie, but it reminded me a lot of Sometimes They Come Back. Hmm. Um, have you seen that movie? No. Okay. So the story, basically the, it's a short story from Night Shift. The story is about a, um, a high school teacher, surprise, um, who has a traumatic event in his past when he was a child and he, in his classroom, new students start like like each day a new student is transferred into his class and it is a one of the people who was responsible for the traumatic event as a child and as a child and it's just an increasingly um uh depiction of of tormented uh memories and everything but it just reminded me of that i just i thought that that was really uh an interesting parallel to draw okay but in this book, Trash Can Man having that having that kind of psychotic break is just really, really strong. I, I really I really loved it as kind of a, a bit of kind of literal insan- insanity in this section of the book um, that pays off pretty well. Definitely, yeah. yeah. I I mean, it's yeah. I'm not sure what else you can say about right. it. Right? Yeah, yeah me neither. It is pretty, and it's kind of it's it also has its elements of tragedy to it as well yeah i think because like nothing good ever happened to trash can man right uh, until he got to las vegas and he, yeah. he was accepted for the first time mm-hmm. so and it's, then it's unfortunate that that turns into his psychosis yeah yeah and also the his growing psychosis and ins- insanity is something that triggers you know people in the flag camp to think like, okay, well we need to get rid of trash can man. Like flag orders a hit on trash can man. Essentially. Right. Right. Um, but, uh, that kind of blows up in his face. <laughs> um, so let's, let's stop dilly dallying and let's talk about the four pilgrims, the, that are making their way to Vegas. So we've mm-hmm. got Stu, we've got 
Oh my God. Uh, St- <laughs> Glenn Bateman. Stu, Larry, Glenn, and Ralph. Ralph, yeah. So, oh man. So, first of all, uh, I just love the camaraderie among yeah. the four of them. Right. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so great, especially after spending so many, like a, like a handful of chapters in Vegas with the evil faction and everything going back to the people of the free zone that they are on this pilgrimage is just so refreshing. And it's a great way to kind of balance out this section of the book. Um, how did you feel about their journey and then Stu's injury we can talk about? Yeah, I, um, I remember when I first read the book, I was like really surprised and just kind of, I don't know. I, I kind of would have just been like, no, I'm not doing that. That's dumb. <laughs> like, why, why would I do that? I, I mean, we already <laughs> sent the spies. They're, they're doing inf- they're collecting information for us. Mm-hmm. Let's let that play out first. Um, th- I remember thinking that one of the first few times I read it. Um, and I still feel that way to an extent, but I also understand the, how, how faith kind of drives things on, on the side of the free zone. Yeah. People, I, I understand that. Um, and it's, it is a, it was, it, it was a, a good way to kind of raise the stakes in a, in a way that makes sense. I think for the characters, it makes sense. Yes. Um, and, and again, it was just, it was, it, it made for some good drama. Absolutely. And the whole faction, like the, the, or the whole faith based thing is just so just just so involving like mm-hmm. you don't expect let's talk about Stu's injury because this is where it kind of really comes into play yeah so Stu gets injured to the extent that they cannot save him. like they, like they have to follow the instructions that were met that were uh laid out to them like if someone were to fall don't like you can't you have to go on like mm-hmm. nothing should stop you on your quest and i really love Stu's injury that on the surface feels like it's a debilitating like it feels like he's going to die like this is his death yeah and man i i think there's a certain poetry to that um in the way that that this event that Stu, which is a character that we followed from the beginning that he's been like the kind of de facto leader of this pilgrimage yeah he has fallen and this <clears throat> is used as a means to strengthen the other three's resolve and actually like have a test of their faith in mother Abigail and this quest that she's put them on this supernatural thing. It's like them confronting this very out there, supernatural higher power kind of calling that they've, that they've answered. And it's them, them having to be at a crossroads with it to think like, okay, well we like, this is, on the on on the page or like in in uh like in on paper it's it's a really asinine thing like yeah. they're traveling all this long way and everything on faith and they don't have a single clue what's going to happen what they're going to have to do they say like they they're aware that this is a death march like they're they're on their way to their deaths yeah and I love that their resolve and their commitment to that is tested in this moment. And like, this is a defining moment of this, of the good side of, of, um, of the good versus evil battle. So 
Yeah. So did any of that register with you? How did you feel about them, their decision to leave Stu behind? Yeah. I mean, that was harsh. And I remember when, like the first time I read it, I was like, man, I can't believe we're going to like kill off, uh, Stu, you know, yeah. he's, he's the, he's, he's been our leading, leading man throughout this yeah. whole thing. Um, I was really blown away by it, but, um, but yeah, I guess I, I really do like the way it affects the other three mm-hmm. and kind of makes it, makes their journey even more real. Yeah. Um, it was almost like to compare it to Lord of the Rings, you know, like when, um, Bor- Boromir gets, when he dies. Yeah. At the end of Fellowship. The end of Fellowship. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of like that, you know, mm-hmm. I really like that really solidifies things and brings things together um, in that story. And this sort of has a similar effect. Yeah. And it's just beautiful, beautifully written drama as well, because mm-hmm. um, you really feel for these characters who very much care for one another and they're all in this together. And it's just really impactful at a dramatic level. And I also, again, kind of the poetry of it all. I love the symmetry of Stu and Harold in this section. Yeah. So it's just so like there are parallels, but they it's, it's showing that there are two sides of the same coin in that Harold has succumbed to the evil of it. And he ends up like, he does not have a lifeline or anything. He does not have the resolve to, to push forward or anything. He's dead. Like this is his, this is his end. He ends up killing himself and mm-hmm. all that. And then Stu is in a similar position, but he has this resolve and he has a savior in Tom Cullen and Kojak. Right. And it's just, it's just, I think it's a beautifully, uh, demonstrated symmetry between these two or the, or the, uh, they're the antithesis of each other in a, in a, in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I just, I love the, the poetry of that or the, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I don't think that was an accident on Stephen King's part. No, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. So, we get to kind of jump ahead. I have in my notes, uh, chapter 73, the pilgrims arrive. <laughs> um, and my God, I, so I, I talked about Dorgan, the Vegas security guy who used to be a cop. I find him a really interesting character. Um, like Larry. And I also love that the kind of role of leader of this group is thrust onto Larry. Um, it's a classic trope and everything. Um, Maybe we'll talk about this after, but I got such like lost vibes. Like mm. I like this is the part of the book where you really see how much it influenced the writing of Lost. Um, cause I've said before that on the special features on the Blu-ray and everything, they said that like they had a copy of the stand in the Lost writer's room. Yeah. Um, at all times. But the thing that stood out to me with Dorgan and Larry was that Larry is talking to Dorgan as a person. It, like he's, uh, he's on the side of good. Dorgan's on the side of evil, but he's talking to him as a human being. And he tells him that mother Abigail sent them in. Like, I love this kind of offhanded remark where Larry says that Dorgan probably dreamt of her, uh, mother Abigail. And what I love is Dorgan's response is that he denies it, but Stephen King like writes it as Dorgan can't, like he looks away from Larry. He cannot make eye contact. And I think that that was just exquisite because yeah. it's showing like everyone had a choice. And even if they like, it's not so much that they're evil, that there are evil people who will make the evil choice. It's that there are fearful people who will make the easy choice, which is 
to be on the evil side that they think were are overpowered and will win and everything. I just I love that kind of dynamic. So yeah, yeah. I kind of I'm not sure I picked up on all that honestly. Oh okay. Yeah, I mean I I remember that part. It's when they're driving back to Vegas, right? Uh yes yeah, yeah. I think it's after yeah pretty much yeah okay it's when when Dorgan puts Larry in the in the cell. Oh okay gotcha yeah, but uh <laughs> so it's. It's understandable that you may not have picked up on it or anything because right after that we get Glenn Bateman and Randall Flagg. Mm-hmm. Glenn Bateman <laughs> is maybe my favorite character. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I used to say that Nick Andros was, but I think Glenn Bateman has taken the cake. Um, my God. And it's funny. I, I was listening to um, uh, the, the Stand podcast um, from Jason Seacrest over at the Company of the Mad. Mm-hmm. And their second or third episode, they had talked about, like, it was the introduction of Glenn Bateman. And I think Mike Flanagan or someone on that podcast mentioned that they had talked to Stephen King and Stephen King confirmed, uh, Anthony Bresnikan asked Stephen King when he was interviewing him for the Vanity Fair article of the CBS All Access miniseries. Uh, he had said, Stephen King had said that Glenn Bateman is a vessel for his, his own voice. Like he's Stephen King's like avatar for the world. (laughs) So that's why he is so like, he's so knowledgeable and so uh, well-spoken and everything. And he, he knows so much is that he is, he's basically Stephen King writing uh, himself into the story. Mm -hmm. But what did you think of Glenn Bateman's confrontation with flag and obviously Glenn Bateman's ultimate uh, demise in that scene? Uh, I, I think, again, one of the, there's so much to unpack there, but I think one of the more interesting parts of it is, is really how, um, how Lloyd Henry reacts during it. Yeah. You know, he's, he, again, he's so reluctant and I feel like he doesn't want to be participating, uh, in, in this Mm -hmm. event and the cracks really start to show for Lloyd, I think right there. And I think that's when he starts to, not when he starts, but I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a significant moment in his inner conflict mm-hmm. and, and uh, seeing, seeing that or noticing that during this read through was pretty significant for me yeah. uh, in, in regards to his character. But, but all the, all the meat is where is, is just how uh, Glenn Bateman is so, has such strong resolve yes throughout this because he just does not give the man in black does not give randall flag an inch the whole time yep and like literally laughs at him i I mean absolutely like i i love it so much because between that like that's like the big that's that's maybe the most important scene of the entire novel Mm -hmm. and couple that with larry's conversation with Dorgan and then even uh to an extent judge Ferris judge Ferris is uh, judge Ferris and 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 uh um Dana Jurgens mm-hmm. every character from the good side in this in this section has like this is the stand this is the titular stand right. of the novel right is these characters facing evil and the the resolve that they have and it all reaches its big crescendo like i know that we have Obviously, you know, the big boom, the hand of God section coming up. Mm-hmm. But this scene between Glenn Bateman and Flag is 
almost the entire climax of the novel. Yeah. And to your point, like I, like I love it. Like he, like I have in my notes, I love Glenn Bateman so goddamn much. <laughs> um, because you're right. He laughs at him. Like he is so, he does everything in his power to disarm flag and to just completely cut him down immediately like his first line to flag is something to the effect of you're not so much of a boogeyman as we made you out to be <laughs> <laughs> and it's just and i love how it intersperses between his dialogue and his inner thoughts or his inner not inner thoughts but like king goes to actually say like oh well you know the temperature dropped down 10 10 degrees when flag entered the room and uh and and glenn's arthritis flared up as he as flag approached and everything and then you have glenn just being as strong as he can like he's he's not letting it show that his arthritis has flared up he's not letting it show that he's he's not going to be intimidated at all mm-hmm. and what i love so much about it is that he knows what's coming. He knows that this is the end of his life and he chooses to appeal to Lloyd and he tries to like explain to him, but not in a pleading way. At no point in the scene does Glenn Bateman come across as pleading for his life or pleading for like, try to trying to like add more time to his life or anything. He's just so matter of fact, he's saying that like, yeah, you know, um, I know that this isn't like, this isn't what you want to do, Lloyd. Like, this is something that, you know, it's uh, like you have a choice. This is not something that you were completely, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he says, but he basically is like, go ahead and shoot him. Like, shoot him. Like, you have a choice here. You can shoot him right now and end it all. Right. But I just, I love it. And I, I love that it's not enough, but he still goes out a hero. I, I love it so much. This is my favorite part of the entire novel. Yeah. It's yeah. one of my favorites too. Yeah. And and it's funny, like you, you mentioned that judge Ferris, Dana and Glenn all mm-hmm. die. And, and, and I think in the eyes of Randall flag and, and maybe in the thoughts of some of the readers, you see that as a loss, but it's, yeah. it's really, I mean, it's, it's a sacrifice and, mm-hmm. and what they're doing, what those three characters were doing was through their deaths were knocking the wheels off the bus yeah. of the, the, the group in Vegas. You know, they're, yeah. they're taking the wind out of Randall Flagg's sails yeah. by dying. And so it's like, you think they're losing, but they're actually succeeding and like they have to die to do it, but that's the only way to do it. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you think, you think, you think death is a punishment or, mm-hmm. or, you know, d- death is, is supposed to be avoided at all costs. Whereas in this scenario, it's actually a victory Yep, on all three accounts. But I think it's uh, obviously it is exemplified the best with Glenn Bateman at the, yeah. at the end. Uh, They're all making their stand and I, I, yeah. I love it. Yeah. 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 So then, Larry gets his chance. Larry and Ralph, they are led to a public execution. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we get the big moment of the, of the end of the book, essentially. Um, a few different things happen. And it's interesting because this time around, like going into it, this is what I really, and I think this is what a lot of people focus on in terms of the ending is the big hand of God moment and the bomb going off and everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that, 
I think that in my mind, in terms of like in between all of the, the rereads and everything I've done of this book, I've just focused on that and felt underwhelmed by it. It feels like on the surface, a deus ex machina kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this time around, I was floored. I was all for it. I loved it. I think it's brilliant. Um, so basically, to kind of run down what happens is that there's a public execution that's about to take place of Larry and Ralph. Whitney comes into the picture and yells and trying to appeal to everyone saying like, you're not, you're like trying to just say like, you know, this is crazy. Everyone is acting crazy. Then flag murders him with a bolt of like blue flame. I think that goes out into the crowd. And then as trash can man arrives with the bomb, that flame, I love the imagery of this. The flame grows and flies up into the air and comes down in the form of a hand to set off the nuke mm-hmm. and uh and the righteous and unrighteous alike were consumed in that holy fire uh which is one of my favorite lines of all of Stephen King's writing mm-hmm. so how did you feel about this and how did you remember this uh how did you feel about it in prior rereads and how do you feel about it now i s- i'm still not crazy about it Okay. Frankly, um, I feel like, I feel like the story would have been better served if Trash Can Man had literally and physically decided to detonate the bomb. Oh, okay. Once he came back to see what was left for him or what that had turned into. I, I think that would have been the better conclusion, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm just not big on the, supernaturality of it, if that's mm-hmm. a word. Um, cause I, I feel like obviously there's supernatural powers at play mm-hmm. in this conflict, but I feel like the result of it is ultimately left, should be left up to who's going to win. Like it, it should be mm-hmm. left up to the efforts of good versus evil. Like God quote unquote should not interfere Interesting. And I feel like that's what happened and and it's it's not bad. I just like I said like or like you said and then I agree with her this is the theme of the book is that or it's a theme in the book that Judge Ferris, Dana and and Glenn and the other people who go to Vegas from the mm-hmm. free zone are making their stand and they make that sacrifice. They sacrifice their lives to to demonstrate to those people how they don't, they have a choice mm-hmm. and trash can man had a choice. And, and I think it would have been great if he had just made the right choice and just decided to detonate the bomb himself or some variation of that. I can definitely, definitely see your point. And I do agree yeah. with you that that, cause it does muddy it a little bit. The, the hand of God, like it is literally an act of God that the entire group of like evil side of it was wiped out completely mm-hmm. um and that is a little bit of a cutting the corners a little bit yeah um deus ex machina like you yeah. Said. yeah but i i don't know i just feel like it felt appropriate this time around because the fragility of the the fragility of the dynamic between okay so the two factions, the good side, the evil side, the free zone and Vegas, Vegas is corruption and it is evil and everything. It is following just blindly following this 
charismatic and persuasive and horrific demon of a, of a creature. And I don't know, I don't know how to articulate it that like a literal hand of God coming down and like setting off the nuke is a reset button to an extent. And I feel like that is, it's, I, I don't know, maybe I can rationalize it by saying that it feels like less of, less of a God interfering in the, in the, uh, in the battle of good versus evil and more of a, okay, good wins, evil's gone. Now let's go and have Stu and Tom go back to Boulder. <laughs> um, it's like, it just wipes out an entire side of, of the conflict and everything. Um, I don't know. I just felt like it just, it felt like a beautifully appropriate thing. Okay. Um, do you see it as an actual hand of God or do you think that it's flag flags, final thing that he does? Uh, I, I see it as like, a an act of God. Yeah, me too. Yeah. As opposed to, or as opposed to like a happy accident or something that, right. that flag caused it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a literal act of God. Um, I think so too. And you know, in, in the, to, to speak religiously, I guess, you know, mm-hmm. that's how it's supposed to be. The, oh, they're, yeah. they're supposed to be the good, good and evil are only supposed to influence all of us, right? To, to mm-hmm. do whatever we do, right? Uh, you know, the, the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, right? They're just mm-hmm. whispering in your ear. That's what it's supposed to be. And then whatever transgressions us can, cons- you know, take place is the result of choices being made. Yeah. That's how I prefer it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely, like I said, this read through was my favorite read through of the conclusion of this book. Yeah. And I, I definitely grew to appreciate book three more with this read through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, uh, sort of made peace with that, I guess, uh, okay. with, with the hand of God ending. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I just loved it this time around. I, okay. I didn't really articulate it that well because I don't really have the words for it, but I just think that it, it's something about it just clicked with me and it felt like a, an interesting reset of it that, mm-hmm. yeah, evil is not going to win out and this is, this is the end. Um, yeah. So to kind of wrap up a little bit, we have a very long denouement to this book. Yeah. Um, basically it's the adventures of Stu and Tom Cullen. Yes. And, we can kind of briefly run through it because we're running a little bit long. Yeah. So what I love about it, I was so surprised when Tom came back because I, for some reason I had forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. And I love the idea that, that, uh, um, Nick is like speaking to Tom from beyond the grave. Yeah. And helping him to get Stu back on his feet. Totally. And just the journey that Stu and Tom go through is so, it is the like it is such a strong like um i don't know if i'm using this word right a, a good like salve to put on the wound of the of mm. the emotional journey that we went through yeah um did i use that right you did yeah okay yeah journey um, <laughs> no but uh it's a it's a good like just breather into kind of this is the triumph of 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 the book is that these characters represent the good and the entire journey back is them just loving each other and wanting to get back. And there's a little bit of that fear. Like Stu has the dreams of, of Franny and, and like having a demon child and everything, Mm -hmm. but the little things like Stu 
setting up these little surprises for Tom. And like, it's such a charming thing when he. It's like, so sweet. It's so sweet. Yeah. Like I actually chuckled and did like an audible aw <laughs> because when Stu was talking about like, oh, I got you a Christmas present. Um, I think I heard Santa <laughs> and everything, yeah. and he's like, I know Tom Cullen knows Santa isn't real, and then like even after that, he's like. Yeah, I think I think I heard a sleigh last night. <laughs> it's just like it's so charming. It is. Um, and I do want to mention that uh, I have in my notes: Stu's movie surprise for Tom hits different in the era of COVID nineteen. <laughs> Word. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, what did you think of this whole denouement and their journey back to to Boulder? Uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of the book. It's nice. just, it's just so sweet and mm-hmm. so um. Like you said, their journey is very arduous. You know, they're they're battling nature. It's it's funny because the book is so much a, a good versus evil conflict, right? You go, mm-hmm. you go to those 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 tent poles of literature, right? It's good versus yeah. evil, and it sort of morphs into this kind of man versus nature thing at the end. Yeah, uh, and I always love those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and and just just the way that they care for each other, and and the the nice little surprises. Uh, that, that Stu gives to Tom are just, they're just sweet. That's the word that just comes to mind. It's so yeah. heartwarming and sweet. And it's just, it's such a warm, despite the fact that it's the dead of winter, it's such a warm feeling that it provides. Absolutely. Um, that these guys are so, they're so driven by their love for each other and their loved ones back home that they can overcome all these obstacles. Absolutely. It's just, it's, it's really such a great way to, to end the book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, to me, it's more satisfying than the actual climax of the conflict. Uh, yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely get on board with that. And when they finally get back, just everything, it's just, it has this feeling of just conclusiveness. And it's, it's such a great, conclusion to this massive story mm-hmm. in that like we get resolution of like okay um uh uh oh what's her name is pregnant um larry oh um mm. julie no. no judy no no joni jerry <laughs> um that's <laughs> something with a j yeah um, might be a soft J. Yeah. Am I pronouncing it wrong? <laughs> Samsonite. I was way off. New started with an S, though. Anyway, um, two different movies. Anyway, so um, yeah, his his she she has twins and um and like Franny's Franny's baby lives and everything like this. It's this hopeful thing mm-hmm. that's born out of this new life and everything. And then we even get. Like it's not just completely one hundred percent everything. It's like re- we get resolution or we get the hint of resolution to the rebuilding of society and that like they have that section where it's like, okay, well, you know, a drunk guy assaulted an officer and now they're talking about having guns and everything. Right. And it's like they're like slowly civilization is coming back and we're left on that note. Mm-hmm. Um and we can kind of infer that from from there. But Yeah. It's it, it beautiful. It's sort of it's I I do I do kind of enjoy the the little shift uh, that Stu talks about when, or I think it's maybe when Franny's talking about when they're talking about leaving mm-hmm. uh, and going back to Maine. Yeah. Um, uh, th- like they are talking about the way how society is starting to kind of go back to their old ways, and it's yeah. it's it's such a fun kind of little shift 
that it's 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 shifted from a perspective of survival yeah to a perspective of like wants and needs and, and growth and growth yeah. yeah and it's they're they're sort of falling into these unfortunate tropes like there's there's like two clear guys who should be who might be running for mayor or sheriff yeah. or something like that and it's like okay we're starting to get into like party politics again mm-hmm. and we're talking about these very first world to, to to use a modern term a very these right. very first world um not necessarily first world problems but like oh should our cops start carrying guns now yeah. like it's like well we're only worried about that we're only thinking about that now because we're not worried about where our next meal is going to come from and yeah it's like things are starting to get quote unquote better mm-hmm. and it's 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 just a fun little a fun little turn of the wheel there that um kind of gets away from these big, these giant good versus evil themes or man versus nature themes that were driving the story for so long. Yeah. It gets into these little, it gets into the sociology of it again mm. that, that Glenn Bateman touched on throughout the book. Exactly. It's, it, it's just kind of a fun little, a fun little gear or a fun little wrench to throw in the gears mm. at the end there. Yeah. It's shifting away from the biblical stuff to the societal stuff. And it's a little sad. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I just, I, I think it's really, uh, like, I, this is a thought that I just had now, so it's not as polished as I would hope it to be, which can explain all of my podcasting. <laughs> but, um, the, I could see, like, what I love about this, and this is a similar thing that I had with parts of Game of Thrones, um, toward the end, but like, what we've just read throughout this entire novel, like this entire story, just to leave it on this note that, okay, society is going to, is presumably going to return to normal. Like we're left on this note of society returning to normalcy. And in doing that, in seeing that, I could see this being like in the future, like in the, in the future of the, of the storyline of this book, of the, of the people that live live on in the stand and rebuild society and everything like this story that we just read is myth. It's the myth of, of the new world order and everything. And it's just, I I can see that being just a powerful kind of thing. Maybe that'll change the way society grows or maybe it won't change anything. And it'll just be a fun story. But Mm -hmm. um, it's just something that really kind of leaves a lot to kind of uh, ruminate on as you think about these characters in this world. Right. So, we do have one final scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the circle closes. Uh, Randall Flagg uh, has rebranded himself Richard Faraday, I think. Um, and he is, he appears on a, an island with, with primitive people, like not society, like not a, uh, um, not an advanced society, not an advanced society. And, He's like he's he's up to his old tricks again. Right. How did you feel about this? Where did you where did that leave you? And how did you feel about this coda to the book? I thought it was a very Stephen King thing to do. Yeah. Um. Just throw that in there. It's it's fun. It's mm-hmm. it's a. I'm trying to think of something to compare it to, but yeah, it it is a a fun little thing. Yeah. I, I liked it. Yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And I'm curious because I know that Stephen King wrote a new ending or a new coda to this story. Mm. So I'm very curious what that's going to be for the mini series, but, but yeah, that'll, that's it. That's, that's the stand. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We covered it all. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about Randall flag and the dark tower and everything, but, uh, it's late. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it is. Yeah. So 
maybe we'll cover that in a future episode. We'll see. But that's the stand. Um, Tiny, we just reviewed the stand. <laughs> we done did. So to kind of close out this episode, Tiny, I sent you a screenshot mm-hmm. that is our current top 19s. So I have the stand at number four. It's underneath uh, 112263, It, and Misery. And you have it at number three, mm-hmm. underneath the Dark Tower 7 and Misery. Yeah. So, does this read of the stand change that for you in any way? I don't think it does. I think I want to leave it where it's at. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I think I think it's... I'm I'm very curious to when I re to when I reread Misery because mm-hmm. I think sticking it at number two was sort of a nostalgic pick because I, okay. I I read it 20 years ago. Yeah, Misery. Um, and so rereading Misery will be interesting. Interesting to see if I want to leave it there, or move it around. Um, I have a feeling I'm going to want to move it around a little bit. Okay. But uh, yeah, for now the stands number three. I'm I'm happy with that. Honestly, and I'm I'm happy with it at number four. Um, I think. It's, it's such an epic book and it's so, it's, it's beautifully told and I got so much more out of it this time than I have in previous reads of it. But I think that it's placement at number four on my list underneath Misery, It, and 112263 speaks more to the power and strength of those three books than it does any disadvantages or shortcomings of the stand. So I'm comfortable with it at number four. Of course, this is July 21st. At this point, we have probably already covered Misery, <laughs> so this is probably an out-of-date list, possibly. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway, that's that's it for our review of The Stand. <laughs> um, hope you guys enjoyed these three uh, episodes reviewing The Stand. Next time on the podcast, Tiny, we are going to start covering Mick Garris's um, 1994 stand miniseries. Yep. Are you excited about this? Uh, I don't know about excited. I I haven't watched it in a long time. I just remember it being very 90s campy. Me too. Me too. I don't know if I've seen it all the way through, so I'm very okay. curious how I'm going to feel about it this time around. Um, so the way that we're going to do that is this miniseries from 1994 is divided up into four episodes. Uh, it's available on all the digital platforms. There was just a remastered Blu-ray uh, release that came out recently, so check that out and everything. But we're going to double up the episodes for each podcast. So next time on the podcast, we're going to cover episodes one and two of the miniseries titled The Plague and the Dreams. And then the following episode of the podcast, we're going to cover the last two episodes of the miniseries, The Betrayal and The Stand. So look forward to that. And any parting thoughts, Tiny, on The Stand or the podcast or what have you? No. All right, sweet. <laughs> All right, well, thank you guys so much for listening. And once again, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And uh, hope you guys enjoyed these episodes. Long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. I hope the mics aren't picking up picking up pizza trying to open a box of food. Um, it's so cute because, like, cause like I, I intentionally starve her because, you know, she needs to be strong. Um, and so, like, she knows there's food in there, and she hasn't eaten in, like, four days. Um, oh and it's just it's so cute because she's like, I want food. And I'm like, no, I'm in charge. <laughs>
Um, yeah. He's joking, guys. I just watched the cat eat. Right, right. Um, I am joking. Yes, I do not have a gun to Tiny's head. Um, no, pizza, pizza's okay. She'll, she'll, she's, she, she eats it. It's fine. Yeah. Um, I feel like we could do an episode where we talk about. Tower Junkies is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to TowerJunkiesPod.com slash archive. You can also like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash TowerJunkiesPod and follow us on Twitter at TowerJunkiesPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is just a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at TowerJunkiesPod.com slash donate, or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. For official Obsessive Viewer merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, visit our Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at obsessiveviewer.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about our annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter, at obsessiveviewer. You can also find Anthology, Matt's solo podcast covering The Twilight Zone, and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology TV shows at anthologypod.com and OV Anthologypod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Music for the podcast is provided with permission from Fingers T on YouTube. Additional bumper music is provided courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. Thank you so much for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. Kitty! Can we pause for one second? I need to blow my nose. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how dogs start to train, or your pets start to train, train you after a while. I know, right? Yeah, she's so pretty. Though, look at her. Look how cute. Yeah, yeah. Giz has tried to get us to the point where the only way he will come inside from being outside is if we offer him a treat. <laughs> and nice. so we've just started like walking up to him and like cornering him and picking him up and taking him Aww. inside because it's like, no, you're not going to do that to yeah. us. No. Yeah. I'm weaker than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah. Uh. So yeah, I just love that kind of that dichotomy of or that that dynamic of fear